Most animals play, at least at some times. So an animal might play fight or play chase. And when they do that, they do it in a stylized way that mimics the real thing but doesn't hurt them so much. And sometimes while they're playing, they may accidentally hurt each other. And when they do that, they need a way to find out, are we still playing or have we stopped playing? And so uh, laughter is that kind of a signal. It's a we're still playing signal. It's okay. Uh, don't worry. It, we're still fine. We're still good. Uh, it looked like maybe somebody got hurt, but nobody got hurt. We play socially. We are very social creatures. So a lot of our play is about playing with social rules and pretending to violate them and testing out to see what kind of violations anybody cares about or doesn't care about. This is a talk by Robin Hansen on hidden motives and social agendas. Robin is a pioneer in rigorous futurism, an economics professor, Future of Humanity Institute research associate, and the founder of Overcoming Bias. Robin discusses his newest book, The Elephant in the Brain, and his celebrated classic, The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life When Robots Rule the Earth, before opening up for an extensive Q&A. He covers the story we tell ourselves about why we want what we want and what we actually want, from why we prefer to speak rather than listen, why we laugh, and ultimately why we say we care about the long-term future. For more videos of Robin on value drift, job automation, brain emulations, and grabby aliens, visit Foresight's YouTube channel. Enjoy! Long ago, I was a physics student and uh, engineering before that, and then later I became a uh, research programmer for nine years. And in the fields of physics and engineering and software, I noticed that people were eager for innovation. People are eager for big improvements. Even though they're disruptive, expensive, most of them don't work, still the world will pay a lot for those, and they put a lot of energy into it. And therefore, they're hard to find, which I noticed. <laughs> and then when I started looking in social science, I noticed that it was actually relatively easy to find pretty big improvements in social science. That excited me, and I switched to social science. And after a while, I learned that the reason why it seemed so easy to find big improvements wasn't exactly my unusual genius. It was <laughs> the fact that we almost never adopt these things. <laughs> They just sit there, decade after decade, things that could improve but we don't use, which raises the puzzle. Why are we so much less interested? You might think it's because well, we really can't show that they're better or we, we, there's a lot of, too much conflict over better for whom. Really, that's not it. We, we can deal with those things and show they're better. They're just not interested. And so our book, I think, is finally, for me, an explanation for this lack of interest and maybe for a way to overcome it. And it's about hidden motives, about how we're wrong about our motives is why we are not interested in social Uh, improvement largely. And so let me explain what I mean by hidden motives. Uh, I'm going to describe two kinds of animals and their behavior. And from a human's point of view, there's an obvious explanation that's wrong. Uh, on the left, we have primates who do a lot of grooming. They uh, pick dirt and bugs out of the hair of their associates. And you might think that they're being helpful. That would be the obvious motive a human would describe. If they're being helpful, then the amount of time they spent grooming should be proportional to, say, the size of their backs or how dirty their environment is, but that's not true. The grooming time is proportional to the size of their groups. And therefore, what seems to be going on is that grooming is largely a political act. It's a way of showing alliance and allegiance to particular other associates, and they groom in order to say, I'm with you and you and I are together. Uh, the babbler bird on the right... Uh, is in so a group of birds that are social, and there are predators around they have to watch out for. So typically, one bird will be highest up on top of a nearby bush, 
And if the predator is seen, they will call out and warn the other birds about that. This bird is also seen often giving food to the other birds. Now, from our point of view, we might say, well, this is also being helpful. Uh, they are helpfully looking out, putting themselves at risk to look out for predators, and they're also giving each other food. But it turns out these birds fight for the position to be on the highest on the branch, and they shove food down the throat of unwilling other birds. <laughs> so apparently this is a status hierarchy where they are fighting to be higher status, and they're not really trying to be so helpful from their point of view. Uh, that should suggest that maybe your motive detector is a little off. Uh, half a century ago, there were what called split-brain experiments. In these experiments, uh, these are patients who the two halves of the brain had been split apart for some medical reason, which isn't very good. <laughs> and each half of the brain then is connected to one eye and one ear, one arm and one leg. And they could do experiments like talk to one half in a way the other half couldn't hear. So they could ask, they could tell one half, stand up. And that one half would use its leg and arm to push up and stand up, and the other half would go along. And then they could talk to the other half of the brain and say, why did you stand up? The, of course, correct answer is, I don't know. <laughs> you, you were just talking to the other half of the brain. I don't know what they were doing. But that's not what happens. Uh, typically, they very confidently answer uh, something very specific that's wrong. <laughs> like, I wanted to go get a Coke. So that says you're the sort of creature who is, who is ready all the time to give an explanation for what you're doing, even if you have no idea. And you give it confidently, which should suggest you're not so sure about your motives. It doesn't say you are wrong about your motives, but it suggests you could be, and you wouldn't know. If you're an actor or actress, and you are given a script, and the script says the two of you are sitting at this romantic dinner table, telling each other how much you love each other, how great your relationship is, how wonderful this evening is, and how much you look forward to a continued relationship, actors will tell you they can't act this scene. Why? There's only one level. In order to be a realistic actor, they will have to find their motivation, which isn't the motivation that's on the surface here. My motivation could be, I'm thinking of leaving them, and, and I want to be nice about it. Or I'm afraid they'll leave me, and so I'm trying to be extra nice to keep them from leaving me. Something like that becomes a believable motive, because we expect there to be more than one level of motivations in a scene like this, i.e., the, the surface motivation and a, and a more correct real motivation. This should prime you to expect that maybe there is a lot of hidden motives in the world. Our book, uh, one copy left over there because they've been selling well, sorry. <laughs> uh, the first third of it goes over theoretically why you might expect us that we could or might even often be wrong about our motives. But it's really hard to convince you you are actually wrong about our, your motives without telling you many specific motives that you're wrong about. So the original part of the book is the last two thirds, which goes over these 10 areas and for each one of them explains why you're wrong about your motives. Uh, therefore, hoping to convince you overall that you're wrong. Let's go through an example. <laughs> the first example is laughter. You all laugh all the time. I just heard a little. However, you don't know why. Uh, theories of laughter over the centuries have included things like you laugh at things that are funny. Well, that doesn't make much sense. That's not much of a theory, is it? You laugh at things that are weird. You laugh at ways that other people are lower than you, so you can laugh down at them. You laugh at things that are just uh, rule violations that don't matter very much. But what we have actually found is that laughter is a play signal. That is, most animals play, at least at some times. So an animal might play fight or play chase. And when they do that, they do it in a stylized way that mimics the real thing but doesn't hurt them so much. And sometimes while they're playing, they may accidentally hurt each other. 
And when they do that, they need a way to find out, are we still playing or have we stopped playing? And so uh, laughter is that kind of a signal. It's a we're still playing signal. It's okay. Uh, don't worry. It, we're still fine. We're still good. Uh, it looked like maybe somebody got hurt, but nobody got hurt. We play socially. We are very social creatures. So a lot of our play is about playing with social rules and pretending to violate them and testing out to see what kind of violations anybody cares about or doesn't care about. Um, there's, there's an old saying that uh, comedy uh, or tragedy is when I cut my finger and uh, comedy is where you fall into an open sewer. <laughs> uh, that is, we often reveal through what we laugh at what we care about. Uh, and so, for example, we actually may laugh at the joke, uh, don't drop the soap in the prison shower. And this would be something you might be horrified to say with a straight face that I don't care about people being raped in prison. <laughs> but when it's a joke, it's okay to reveal that you actually don't care about rape in prison. Uh, so it makes sense that when we're playing with our social rules, we laugh to show, hey, it feels like this might have been a rule violation, but we all know this isn't. In our group, we're not going to really call anybody on that, really, because none of us are prisoners or know anybody who's a prisoner, so it's okay if we laugh about prison rape. Uh, but we aren't aware of that, and plausibly that helps us from the accusation that you're just a mean person because you're laughing at these things. We can come back and say, it's just a joke. It's just, it's just humor. Can't you take a joke? And that way we can test all these boundaries without actually, you know, officially violating the rules. Of course, in practice we are violating the rules, but it's supposedly it's okay. Though the general pattern here, we're going to go through nine more examples, is that there's a Pattern of, there's a kind of behavior, there's a usual story, or even a suspicious lack of a usual story. Uh, people being suspiciously ignorant of something they're doing all the time and yet are unaware. And there'll be a bunch of puzzles that uh, don't make that much sense about this behavior. Uh, and in puzzles and laughter, I didn't go over things like that we laugh 30 times more often when we're around other people. We uh, laugh more when we're speaker than we're listening. Uh, most of the time we aren't laughing about a joke, things like that. And the puzzles will be things that won't make sense from the usual point of view or lack of view. And then there'll be another explanation that makes more sense. That's the general pattern here. And the thing you should keep in the back of your mind is, if the thing we're doing is a reasonable thing to do, why don't we know? Why not just be open and honest about these things we're doing? We'll get back to that. Now, some uh, caveats. Just in general, we're not very going to be very focused here on how conscious you are of these things. For some things, you are very conscious knowing that you're lying or misleading people. <laughs> or at least not, not being completely forthright in what you're saying. And for other things you do, you, you aren't very aware of that. You, you sincerely, quote-unquote, think you're doing it for one reason and don't really notice that your behavior isn't very consistent with that. Uh, that varies a lot from person to person, time to time. You, you vary in what areas you find sacred or precious. And so when we get to your area that you consider sacred, you're going to be more resistant <laughs> to believing our claims here about the hidden motives and it's okay. We really only need to convince you of seven or eight out of ten to convince you that hidden motives are pretty common. So, you know, hold on to your precious uh, beliefs about your precious areas if you want. Uh, also, you know, almost any area of human life, thousands of motives will be relevant. And we're averaging over lots of people all over the world across history. So, of course, almost every possible motive could have been relevant at some point or time. What we're talking about is not the motive. It's the most common motive. And so the usual motive is going to be the thing we would usually say most commonly as our main motive. And the alternative motive is what we're saying is actually the more common motive. Uh, but many, many motives are relevant. So, uh, and so therefore the usual motive works as an excuse for the other one. So the 
Excuse the dog ate my homework only works because sometimes dogs eat homework. The dragon ate my homework doesn't work. Uh, and so part of the story of these things being excuses is they are sometimes true. They're just not as true as often as we expect. All right. Now let's start going through the other nine areas, starting with body language. When you or any uh, talk with a friend or any sort of associate, you typically negotiate a relative status level, which isn't equal. One of you is higher status than the other, even if you're close friends, even if you're spouses. And this is status is revealed via who has an open stance, uh, who looks straight the other one in the eye, who sets the tone and pace of, of the rhythm of talking or walking if you're walking together. Uh, these things all are things actors need to learn in order to be realistic on stage. Uh, they need to learn how to show these status moves that show their relative status. But you do all these things and you're almost completely unaware of them, unless you've taken acting classes or some other special class. Uh, you are communicating these relative status uh, in, in very observable ways once you know what to look for. Uh, we also flirt via body language. And we're also relatively unwilling to admit that. That is, if, if I ask you, why is your shoulder this way or why are you looking that way, you will usually make an excuse, well, that was more comfortable or something. You won't be talking about status moves and you won't be talking about flirting. Even though these are ways we communicate with your bodies, you are relatively unaware and actually largely in denial about what your body is doing. Why do you talk? Of course, sometimes you need to talk like don't step on my toe or something like that. That's very practical. But you do a lot of talking that's not so practical, that's relatively optional. Why do you do that? Well, of course, you have to fill the time somehow, perhaps. And maybe you show another person you care about them by just the fact you talk to them and not somebody else. But of course, you do more than just stand there and stare at them. You talk about things. So why do you talk about the things you do? Uh, the most common explanation somebody would give there is that you are sharing information. Uh, you know things I don't. I know things you don't. If we talk to each other, we can both learn more than we started with. That's great, right? If that were the main reason for conversation and talking, then we would do things different than we do. I might say, I've told you three things so far that are useful. You haven't told me anything. It's your turn. We keep track of debts. Uh, we would be much more eager to listen than to talk, which, of course, is usually not true. Uh, we'd be fine with jumping from topic to topic as long as they were important, valuable topics. Uh, but in fact, we talk about a lot of trivia, and we have this rule that the topic of conversation has to go smoothly in a way that was hard to control or predict. And plausibly, what's really going on is we're showing off in a contest to show a good backpack of tools and resources. The idea is the conversation will go in lots of random places you can't predict or control, and wherever it goes, it's your job to say something interesting. If you can do that, then we think that as an ally, you'll be pretty useful because wherever we go in life and whatever happens, you'll have something to show and something to contribute. And that's plausibly an explanation, not only for personal conversations, but also for media conversations and academic conversations following the same format. In those areas, we also tend to often talk about trivialities. We follow the fashion of the conversation wherever it happens to be at the moment, and we do a lot of showing off via those conversations. You guys own many things, you buy many things. Why, if we ask you, do you have those things? Or why did you buy those things or use those things? And you usually point to some function they provide. The shoes have a leather sole, uh, you know, the car gets good gas mileage, etc. But as you all know, people pay a lot of attention to how the things they buy will make other people think about them. How they manage impressions. This is sort of obvious, but that's not something people usually talk about when they talk about why they buy any one thing. They don't talk about the impression it makes. Many advertisements, like the one up here, 
show a product in association with something else and basically say nothing about the product itself. Uh, you know nothing about this beer other than you could put it on the beach, but of course you could put any beer on the beach or pretty much anything. So what does that tell you about this beer? Um, and we have uh, many things that we advertise to mass audiences like that are only rich people buy, like Rolex watches are on big billboards that everybody watches. What's the point to that? Uh, and, you know, Super Bowl ads get, see more people, and not only do they cost more because there's more people who watch them, they cost more per person. A plausible explanation for these and many other puzzles is that we use the things we buy to project images of ourselves to the people around us. And advertisements like this help expand the language of those images. If you want to be the sort of person who likes beaches around the people around you, how do you communicate that? Well, this ad tells you waving one of these beers is a way to tell people around you that you like beaches. And so these advertisements and the products expand the language of ways you can easily tell people the kind of person that you are without having to say it, because you don't actually want to say it. You would just want to imply it directly. If the thing you want to communicate with your product is that it's a very rich, it's a product only rich people can afford, and that's the thing you want people to know, you need a lot of people to see the ad so that they know it's a product they can't afford. <laughs> it doesn't work. If only rich people see the ads for Rolexes, then all the rest of you won't be envious when you see a Rolex. Uh, so uh, advertising and products do a lot to help us project the images of ourselves to other people. That's a lot of things, things that many of you know when you talk about other people. It's just very rarely what you will say about yourself when you buy any one thing, that this is the reason you're doing it. What's art for? Art is very impractical. Now, there are some animals who do art uh, to impress potential mates, but what's it for? What's, what's the point of it? So our usual story about what art is for is to induce an experience in the person viewing or enjoying the art. It might be beauty, but it doesn't have to be beauty. It could be shock, it could be insight, or some other experience, but the point is to produce an insight. That's our usual story about art. Artists are there to produce this experience for us. Now, we have a bunch of things that we, that are preferences that are, uh, don't make that much sense from this point of view. Uh, we often want things that are pretty impractical. We like them to be expensive and hard. So, so once upon a time, people liked realistic art because it was very hard to do. And once photography showed up, it turned out that was easy to make things realistic. And so all of a sudden, realistic art was not valued anymore. Uh, why? It produces the same experience as it used to. Once upon a time, lobster used to be so common that they had rules that prisoners couldn't be fed it too many times a week. And now that lobster is very rare, it becomes this exclusive elite thing. It's still the same lobster. Still tastes the same, but uh, our preference for it varies with how hard it is to get or make. Um, we care a lot about extrinsic features of an art. So, if I show you the same piece of art and I tell you ten people worked on it, you you're impre- you like it less than if only one person made it. And of course, you like expensive materials and all these other sorts of things. So, plausibly, what's going on with art is that you are showing, as an artist, of course, your ability to make art. But as an art consumer, you're showing a connection and attachment with somebody who's pretty impressive in making the art, and you're also showing your discernment, the ability to distinguish the good art from the not-so-good. And you are proud of that, but you don't admit that. <laughs> you talk about the experience itself as if that was the thing you cared about. Many people here may have heard of the effective altruism movement, which is focused on highlighting the fact, as we mentioned in the book, that most people are not paying much attention to how effective their charity is. The usual story about charity is that it's supposed to help, but there are many ways charity could help a lot more that people are not very interested in. Uh, and if you were just trying to do the very best charity you could find, you would give all your money and time to want the one best instead of trying to spread it out. There's not much advantage in portfolio variety in helping people because there's so many 
other people helping. Um, and we do pre prefer to give to identifiable people near us, and uh, we, do, we give more when other people are watching us, if other people ask us, for thinking about mating. And there are ways we could help uh, other people that we are not at all interested, even though they have pretty strong arguments. So if we saved an investment, you could roughly grow at 5% a year over a century. That could be a factor of 1,000. Uh, more resources to help people a century from now. Almost nobody's interested in that. And there's something called marginal charity, which has an enormous uh, cost-benefit ratio that almost nobody's interested in. Uh, plausibly, what's going on with charity is that you're trying to show the people around you that you have this emotional response, that if somebody around you seems to be in need and hurting, you that hurts you and you want to help them. And that reassures the people around you that you would help them if they, if they were in need, and they like that. Uh, your willingness to help the most in-need person in the world somewhere else in time is not so reassuring to them. <laughs> uh, that doesn't do much good for them. If they're in need, that you'll continue to help the person most in need somewhere else in the world. Uh, and so... People are more interested in showing this emotional response to the people around them than they are in actually giving to the most effective person in need out there. Uh, my colleague Brian Kaplan has a book out at the moment called The Case Against Education. It's very good. It has a full book-length summary of what I'm about to, uh, that we have only a chapter about that we summarize and I'm about to talk about in just a short time. Why do we go to school? The usual story is that we go to learn the material. You learn things, that's good on the job, that's good as a citizen, that's good for your personal life. Learning things is good. However, as you may know, uh, if you've been out of school for a little while, you forget pretty much everything you learned. And the few things you do remember really aren't very useful. Uh, like me, you could actually have gone and got the very best education for free if you didn't want the degree. So I, I actually went and sat in on classes at Stanford without registering or applying. I even got a letter of recommendation based on one of the classes. <laughs> and, uh, and nobody cared uh, because I didn't ask for a degree. Uh, people who get more years of school and a degree in them do get more uh, income. But uh, bartenders who get a college degree um, get paid more than high school graduates who get a college degree who get paid more than uh, bartenders who don't have a college degree, even though none of these things have much to do with bartending, and there are many other jobs like that. And you get paid three times as much for the last year of high school or the last year of college, even though you don't learn more in those years. Um, and we've had decades of education researchers discovering ways that you could learn the material more faster. And schools have just been completely un uninterested in adopting these reforms. Uh, why? why? If the school's about learning faster, don't you, doesn't a school want to help you learn faster? And won't they advertise that and get more people to come to the school so you can learn faster more at the school if schools were about learning more? Well, plausibly, schools are not about learning more. What you're actually doing at school is showing off, showing that you are smart, conscientious, conformist. Uh, you've learned modern workplace habits. Uh, you know what the works I like. You get indoctrinated by your government. All wonderful things. But it's not what you say in a letter of application, in a graduation speech, in a politician speech about education. In those contexts, in the most public context, you will talk about learning the material and how great that is for everybody and how everybody needs it and how shame it is that some people don't get to learn all the material that other people do. Um, this may be the one that surprises you the most, in our society at least. Why do you go to the doctor? Why do you go to the hospital? Your usual story, I'm sure you're familiar, is that you get sick sometimes, and they can help you get well. Then you should be surprised to hear, and thankfully you're almost all sitting down, um, there's pretty much no correlation between health and medicine. <laughs> Uh, that is, we, we know, have data on geographic variation where in some places they 
tend to consume more medicine and spend more and have more visits. In other places, they do less. And when you control for some other easy correlates, uh, those who do more in medicine are not any healthier. We also have randomized experiments where some people were randomly given a low price for medicine. They consumed a lot more because it was free, basically, for them. And uh, as a result, uh, there was no difference in their health. Uh, they did, of course, had fewer free days to do other things because they were spending so many time, so much time going to the doctor. Uh, we have many other things we know about, like exercise, air quality, status, uh, nutrition, sleep, that do have much stronger correlations with health than medicine does. But though we spend 18% of GDP on medicine, we have almost no interest in policy with respect to these other things that influence health. Uh, people yawn, can't be bothered, it just doesn't seem at all important. People are not very interested in information about the quality of medicine. So, um, uh, uh, experiment from a long time ago, uh, people about to undergo heart surgery, where they faced a few percent risk of dying, were asked, would you like statistics on the hospitals and surgeons near you and the, the frequency with which patients die under those surgeons and hospitals? How much would you be willing to pay for that? And it turned out only 8% would even pay 50 bucks, which you know, comes out to maybe a value of life of uh, you know, $5,000 or something. Uh, just very low interest in such, such information. We also have a number of other puzzles that don't make sense from the usual point of view. Our alt favorite alternative theory is that it's like kissing the boo-boo. It's showing that you care. Uh, somebody, a child screams, that sc scrapes their knee and you kiss the boo-boo. It's not the direct medical effect. It's the showing that you care that reassures them and makes them stop crying. Uh, the analogy is to Valentine's chocolates. On Valentine's, you may give somebody chocolates to show that you care about them. Now, chocolates are a food, and they are nutritious, and, uh, you know, you, so you could ask, well, how hungry are they? Shouldn't that determine how many pieces of chocolate I buy? But that's not really how you decide how many pieces of chocolate to buy. You ask, how much do I need to spend to distinguish myself from somebody who doesn't care as much as for me? And therefore, you might buy much more chocolate than they actually need. Similarly, with, with medicine, we might spend a lot more medicine on each other than we actually need in order to show that we care, even if much of the extra medicine isn't very useful. When you buy a box of chocolates for someone, there's a question of the quality. What brand? What type? And for the purpose of, of get, getting a credit for generosity, you don't really care about the quality except through common signals of quality. If you have a private signal about quality, that doesn't matter. And if they have a private signal about quality, that doesn't matter for the purpose of estimating generosity. Similarly, in medicine, be, when we see it as a gift that we give each other, then we are trying to get credit for the generosity, and that makes us uninterested in the private signals about the quality of medicine. Uh, if you don't have someone to give you Valentine's chocolates... Uh, you might buy yourself a box of chocolates and leave it on the desk at work. Why? Well, you'd like to be seen as the sort of person that other people care for. Uh, similarly, you might want to get medicine just because it's become associated with being cared for. And, and even if somebody else doesn't pay for it, you might want to pay for it and just so you can be treated as well as everybody else is treated. Many people have what we call religious beliefs and religious practices, and the usual explanation for the practices is the beliefs, at least in our societies. Now, that wasn't true for most ancient societies. They didn't care what you believed. They just cared that you did the right things at the right time. But we tend to justify and explain our religious behaviors in terms of beliefs. There's a document somewhere, a person who said something, who gives us this information about beliefs about larger supernatural creatures and their preferences and, and orders. And that's the explanation for religious behavior is the religious beliefs. That theory um, 
predicts that these sorts of people are, you know, somewhat excessively gullible. And uh, they're believing these pretty strange things on the basis of pretty weak evidence. And that probably doesn't go well for the rest of their lives. And so on this simple theory, you'd predict that religious people just have a lot of problems. But in fact, religious people do better on pretty much every measure we have. Religious people earn more money. They're healthier. They, they live longer. They have fewer drugs, less crime. Um, they get married more. Their marriages last longer. All of these good things happen to religious people more than less religious people. Uh, why, if, if it's just making a mistake? The uh, standard explanation in social science of religion is that it bonds communities together. The community asks something of you, uh, strange beliefs, strange clothes, strange rituals, and those are expensive to you, but if you pay that cost, you are showing your willingness to pay costs to join the community, and people willing to do that are actually more devoted to each other, and they can be relied on better. And in fact, religious communities that have higher demands from people are more bonded to each other and can rely and do rely on each other more for insurance against various things. And so the uh, various sacrifices that seem arbitrary and uh, expensive are signals of your devotion. Uh, And that's why it's hard for atheist groups who try to create communities that look a lot like religion to actually get the same level of devotion because you show that you're not willing to believe crazy things for each other. Uh, maybe maybe an AI risk community is, is better set to be a religious community because, at least from the outside, the things they believe sounds crazy. And that's what you need to be devoted to each other. Um, my last chapter here in the book, Politics. Why do we get involved in politics? If you ask people, what are you doing about politics? What are you doing in politics? Why are you talking about it, voting? Why are you just reading about it? What's the point? And their usual answer will be something like, I'm helping the world or my nation, or my city, uh, via in, getting involved in politics, figuring out what the better, better people are who have the better policies, helping them, and then producing better policy, making the world better through policy. Uh, that would be a Dudley do-right, trying to make things better. Um, but this theory doesn't make sense of a lot of political behavior. We're actually, compared to most of our other analysis in our life, we're remarkably emotional and gullible in politics, uh, we have strong preferences to be around people who share our political views in ways we don't in other topics. Uh, when we decide to do actions like vote, they're very insensitive to the actual degree to which we influence things, remarkably. Uh, when we choose particular politicians, we care a lot about the positions they take, even when it's on topics that they have no influence over, like senators on education. Uh, and uh, when they're actually good at doing things behind the scenes and getting bills passed, we don't really care about that. We don't give them any credit for that. We really just give them credit for taking positions we agree with, even if it has no influence over policy. Uh, we disdain compromise. We really hate to talk about what we would trade off and give to get other things. Even though that's what makes politics work, is compromises. Uh, when we talk about politics, we're mainly wanting to talk about what we would do if we were king and not wanting to talk about what small change we would be willing to accept and give up for what other small change. Um, all this behavior makes us look more like apparatchiks, which is another name for an old Soviet bureaucrat, uh, is illustrated by the following story. Long ago, when Stalin was still alive, there was a big meeting of bureaucrats, and Stalin's name came up. And as soon as Stalin's name came up, the whole room stood up and started clapping. And they kept clapping for 10 minutes. And toward the end of this time, people were asking themselves, well, should I stop clapping? And if I do, will I seem less loyal to Stalin if I'm the first one to stop clapping? And maybe I shouldn't be the first one to stop clapping. 
Eventually, someone was the first to stop clapping, and everybody else could quickly stop clapping as well, and that person went to Siberia that night. (laughs) Uh, That's what political loyalty is about. It's the fear that unless you show sufficient loyalty to the people around you, they will punish you, because we do actually have strong preferences to work with, to marry, to have as relatives, etc., people who share our political views, and we get pretty mad when they don't. And that's a strong personal incentive you all have to be politically loyal to the people around you. You have very little weak incentive to vote or have political behaviors in terms of how it influences the world, because honestly, you have very little influence over the world. Sorry to break the news. (laughs) But you do influence what the people around you think of you. Okay, we've gone over 10 different areas, and in each area, I've said uh, there's the standard problem that we say we have, there's the alternative problem, uh, the, the standard motive we say we have, the alternative motive that we really have, and we've identified these motives. Uh, and the qu- big question is, why aren't we honest about the motives? So our explanation for that is, our human ancestors were distinguished, and importantly, by having norms. Norms are rules about what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do. And the rule is not just that you have a rule of what you say not supposed to do. If anybody sees you violating the rule, they're supposed to do something about it. And if somebody sees them not doing something about it, that's violating the rule. And so the rule is enforced by making sure everybody checks on everybody about violating the rule. And many of our rules and uh, norms are in terms of motives. So if I hit you on purpose, no good. That's a norm violation. Hit you accidentally, it's not a norm violation. And so it's therefore very important to us to be able to push a good story about our motives. So actually it was so important uh, your brains are the largest brains of any animal's proportion to your body, mainly because of your social world. They're there mainly to manage the social world around you. And this is a big part of your social world, managing the possibility you might be accused of a norm violation. So you're constantly looking at what you're doing and asking, what's a good motive I could attribute to this? <laughs> if somebody were to challenge me, what could I say about why I was doing it? That's so important to you that the conscious part of your mind is that part of you that's in charge of that. That is the conscious part of you that I'm talking to. You're not the king or president of your mind. You're the press secretary. You're the the creepy guy next to the king saying, very good choice, sir. (laughs) Uh, That's your job. You don't really know why you do things. It's not your job to know these things. Your job is to make up a good reason, like I wanted to get a Coke, a coherent reason that makes sense of what you're doing that avoids the idea that you're violating norms. So many of these true motives are at risk of violating norms, even if they're good things, because you're not supposed to brag, for instance. You're not even supposed to brag about how much you love some people more than other people. You're not even, you're not supposed to have subgroup coalitions. These are just ancient human norms that have gone way back. And, and because many of our actual motives are more at risk for violating norms, we have another motive that we attribute to ourselves instead. All right. This is my last slide, at least at my prepared talk. Uh, as I said, this is a conflict between psychology and policy analysis. Psychologists say, yes, of course, we have hidden motives. Yes, of course, we aren't very honest about our motives. But policy people have consistently been accepting our usual motives at face value and going with them. As I said, education researchers focus on how to make education uh, schools such that you learn the material faster. Medical researchers and uh, policy reform designers have been thinking about how we could redesign medicine to get you healthier. Uh, politics people have been trying to ask how could we produce political institutions such that it would produce better policy and so on down the line. And when they make these proposals and we hear them, we're not very interested because we know that it's not actually what we want. <laughs> yeah, they're trying. So they're, the problem they've been solving is to give us more of the thing we pretend to want. And what we actually need to do 
as policy analysts is to come up with ways to let people continue to pretend to want the things they want, pretend to want while actually giving them more of the things they actually want. If we can do that, they'll be much more interested in adopting our proposals because we're giving them what they want. Uh, of course, you might not only want to give them what they want and perhaps give them something of what you think they should have, but you really can't get much buy-in unless you're also giving them a lot of what they actually want. And that's why I say we are actually, we seem so much less interested in social reform as most of our social reforms are designed to give us the things we say we want, which isn't what we actually want. And therefore, we're much less interested. Physics and software innovations do tend more often to give us the things we actually want. And so we're interested in those. And that's my talk. Let's do Q&A. Can we uh, turn up the lights so we can see people in the audience? So, our book is describing a problem mainly, not solving it. Just let us make the point, just, just for the purpose of pedantry, that it should be okay to write a book where you just point out a problem without solving it, if it's, if it's a big enough problem. So we, we didn't focus on solving problems. We focused on the main task of just pointing out how the world is different than people think. But many people want us to also you know, describe our second book we would write if we solved all the problems. But, uh, this is what I wish I most would have known at the beginning of my career. Uh, well, that's also true. So, and we mentioned that in the book. That uh, that's it mentioned in there. Uh, that, that is, I made. This, I made this, this is why, we, but we also only laugh not because it was funny, but only to like you know make sure. Well, we, we but we laugh literally because uh, we're at risk of violating a norm here <laughs> uh, by the comments we're making. And, and we're show. We'll, <laughs> yes. Uh, right. So so one one very simple thing is. We subsidize education and medicine and some other things because they sound like such wonderful things. And they sound like wonderful things because of the things we say we're doing with them. Turns out uh, we aren't doing the things we think we are with them, so they're not so wonderful. So maybe we should just like cut back on subsidizing them. <laughs> that, that's a very simple response. Is to, once you realize you know less than you thought you did about what's going on, like just back off and stop making so many fine decisions that are depending on the assumptions you might be wrong about about what's going on. Uh, so that's one example. Uh, another example is, say, say in charity, somebody just mentioned this earlier today, in charity, what we really want to do is so empathy. So people who... Um, uh, some people have this bone marrow donation thing where you sign up and say, I will donate to help people who have bone marrow problems. And they often have a problem people don't actually follow through. And so they decided to have a variation. They picked you an individual bone marrow recipient and they had you get to know them. 
And then once you got to know them, you were more willing to follow through with the help. Because what you really want to do is show that you have this emotional reaction that you want to help people you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll say that's, it's harder to work there. Right? That's one example. Uh, another example would be in school, if what people really want to do is show off, well, let's find a characteristic school isn't showing off very well. So, so say in a, in a conversation that some people have the skill of just being very fluid and flexible and, and perceptive in a conversation, but most school doesn't reward that very well. It doesn't credential that very well. So imagine making a school or a program in school that does credential that. Well, that's something people would be interested in because some of, some people are good at that and currently they aren't getting credit for that via school. Of course, you'll have to pretend like you're actually teaching them some material because that's the pretense people want to go, but that wouldn't be that hard. But the point is to focus on what it is they actually want and give that to them. All right, so like you, and, and that follows up on that. So you mentioned that part of the reason why we're self-deceiving ourselves is because self, by self-deceiving by deceiving ourselves, we're more likely to deceive others, which is, makes it more likely that we reach the goal that we actually want to reach. So in writing that book, did you hit on any kind of any self-deception where you're like, I could expose this, but they're actually exposing it would make it less likely that people would like would succeed in, in this particular endeavor, so you actually decide not, not to do, reveal the information? Do you think it's ever bad to know? Do you think there's anything in the book, or do you think there's anything that you have held back where it's actually bad to know that we do this? Well, I might have been kind to you to hold things back, I agree, but we didn't. Okay. We, we were not kind to you. Right? No, I'm telling you what, we're not being kind to you. I will say, evolution designed you to be ignorant about most of these things. That's what evolution designed you to be. If you're in the sort of situation evolution roughly anticipated, with the sort of motives that you share with evolution, then you don't want to know these things, and you should just forget, which you are all really quite capable of, so I'm not too worried about that. <laughs> uh, so you should mainly only pay attention to these things personally, in your personal lives, if you have some unusual situation. Uh, you might unusually be, say, a manager or a salesperson, somebody who really needs a strong understanding of other people's motives. Or you might be a nerd like me. That is, ordinary people go through the social world and their intuitions just tell them roughly what to do and it all works. And therefore, they don't become very aware of the fact that the theories they say about their own behavior don't fit what they're actually doing. Nerds have to reason more explicitly about what they're doing And as a result, um, uh, it might not be so bad if they are consciously aware of these things because they're already stuck in the situation of not doing very well because they can't really smoothly go through things intuitively. Uh, and so this might be more useful as a nerd. But it's most useful people who want to be policy analysts or claim to be policy analysts. I would say, if you're going to stand up and say, I understand education or medicine and I'm going to tell you how we should do it better, it should be your job to know what's actually going on. Uh, and you should suffer whatever personal awkwardness it takes to actually know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right, so I know that you don't like zipping through a variety of topics, but like to go rather deep into them, but I think there's a couple of issues that at least tangentially connect to the book that I'd quickly like to, to like at least toss up in case our audience also finds them worth talking about. So one of them is like a thing that I've discovered um, which is, I think, that many people who are interested in AI safety and start off in, or in AI research, then afterwards just go into examining human rationality. Do you think that holds true? And if so, why do you think that it's... Do I think people follow that pattern? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know enough people. I don't know enough people in AI, AI safety research to know their oh, career no, like, trajectories. You, like you've written, like you've done AI. So I did AI research. It wasn't AI safety research okay, exactly. But for AI as well, right? You do AI research. 
and you like overcoming it, then you I mean, wrote Age of M, and now... Psychology and AI are compliments to some sense, in the sense that in AI, you're thinking about a mind and how to construct it and its habits, and psychology is about the construction and habits of human minds. So there, there's certainly a natural affinity there uh, that, that the two topics are related. Uh, whatever theories you have about human behavior and, and why they do things, that could be a candidate theory about why an AI might do things, why, why you might construct it. Uh, that's a weak connection, but it's certainly a connection. And in terms of uh, the age of M, so you you definitely you helped set up um, Fawcett's future market at our um, Vision Week in 1999. And I think one of the big markets that you were happy there was on um, when, whether brain emulations would be the first solid AI. Um, and I think the odds were 52 to 55 percent. Okay. Wow. So now after writing Age of M, do you think those odds have changed significantly? I think they would change. If we actually had a betting market on that, I bet the, the, okay. the mar- market odds would change. Whether those are the correct odds is a different thing. Um, Do you have any personal odds? I mean, I think that the emulation scenario is as likely as the other scenario, but many people disagree today. I would make the stronger argument that um, there's a reasonable case that the number of people working on a scenario or the amount of effort on a scenario should be roughly proportional to the probability. Uh, that's actually the rational thing if, say, the results you get from effort are logarithmic in the effort. <laughs> then the optimal thing to do is to have your effort proportional to the probability. So uh, if AI and emulations were roughly equally likely, then we should have roughly equal effort. And I would say we have at the moment at least 100 times more effort into the uh, analyzing the ordinary AI scenario as you do in the emulation AI scenario, which is disproportionate. I might even say it's even more than a factor of 100. And I find it very unlikely to think the ratio is 100 in probability. <laughs> Uh, so I think uh, that suggests that the emulation kind of scenario is underanalyzed relative to the, uh, you know, the, the value of understanding. Uh, that's, that he's seems a strong enough claim. And he's, yeah, he's now we have Neuralink. That's like one effort that Elon Musk is doing. Oh, I meant effort in understanding what's likely to happen. Oh, okay. And, and, and the scenario. Uh, effort in creating a technology depends a lot more on when things are, you know, doable. There are many things that we know will eventually be possible that nobody should be working on now, <laughs> right? Probably space elevators fall in that category, say, or, uh, you know, inter- starships probably, really. Uh, you know, they're just too far away to be justified much effort, even if eventually they'll be important. Sure. And then I think um, you've been, um, oh, like the AI food debate, which is now exactly 10 years ago, right? Huh? Okay. Um, and you and the guys that we're discussing... Um, kind of like the probability of, of whom and like what you might want to do in, in that case. And um, I think he wrote, recently wrote a blog post on, I think, a Miri's website and kind of re-examining the AI whom debate and um, examining AlphaGo Zero and he made the claim that AlphaGo Zero gave, right, or like at least lent support to his side of the AI whom debate. Could you maybe briefly and a couple sentences describe what was the AI whom debate and have you updated your position after recently? Right. I, I did respond to that in a post on less or wrong, if anybody cares. But uh, I see the key argument in AI scenarios, i.e. non-MAI scenarios, as about the lumpiness of innovation. Um, if innovation is very unlumpy, i.e. instead of a few big rocks, it's lots of little pieces of sand, then uh, progress will be relatively continuous. You will slowly pile up more sand, and you will get better. And your pile gets slowly, continuously better. When that, in a continuous scenario, if you have many teams who have many AIs, none, none of them will get too much far, far ahead of the others. They, the continuous development will produce 
Each little lump will produce a small change, and mostly they will stay within a similar range of each other. Uh, that's what happens in a relatively continuous lump, you know, small lump world of innovation. Uh, there, in that scenario, the, the, the machine in a basement that takes over the world in a weekend is not a very plausible scenario. So the argument between LICRI is more about the, lump, the lumpiness of, of, that is, does one machine take over the world? Or does AI in general, like, grow and displace things all over, uh, everywhere, but without any one place being, you know, greatly influential? Um, if, on the other hand, innovation is very lumpy, then uh, there's all these AI teams with AIs that are not very good, and then one team finds the big lump. And then the big lump lets it do so much better, so much more powerful, that the AI produced by that team, does take over the world in a weekend. Uh, and that's the scenario uh, that Eliezer and many others are most concerned about. Uh, if AI is not lumpy, innovation in AI is not lumpy, then what you expect is lots and lots of AIs all across the world, each which are similarly capable, and so no one of them is greatly disproportionately influential. And in that situation, you still should worry about what we call value drift, that eventually the collection of all the AIs, values will drift away from us, but you can't solve that problem by making any one of them stop. So many people are hoping, and it's still not clear that it's possible, to create individual AIs whose values never drift, who always stay within a known range of values. And even if that becomes possible, if only some people do that and others don't, well, then the other AIs' values can drift. And if that's a competitive advantage to let your values drift, and the ones who limit their AI, their value drift have a competitive disadvantage, then eventually values drift because the ones who are allowed to drift win. Uh, so uh, that's if you are very worried about value drift, uh, you should be very worried about that scenario. But uh, you know, making individual, just creating, making it possible for individual systems to not drift their values doesn't solve the general value drift problem unless there's one main system that takes over and you happen to influence it. Uh, just my last comment is that value drift is just a generic problem. For humans, M's, or AI, it's just what's always happened so far. It's the default for what will happen in the future. If you hate it, you're in trouble because it's really, really likely. And uh, I don't, some people for some reason think that value drift in humans is just bounded while value drift in machines is explosive, you know, not only unbounded, but happens quickly. And I don't really see the grounds for that. I think emulations value drift could drift very far, very fast. Machines can also drift their values. The main thing is that in the past, when value drift happened, change was so slow, you didn't see it in your lifetime. And so you didn't worry very much about it. As tra- change gets faster and your lifetimes get longer, you will, in- your life will encompass more value drift. And then, whether it's humans or machines or whatever, you will see it. And if you don't like it, you will see something you don't like. <laughs> Uh, on that, on overcoming bias. Uh, I, many, I many blockers, yes. Yeah. <laughs> many blockers, but a recent one that I read, which was really good. Um, that maybe, like, to quickly just <coughs> the markets, because that's what we are in, and that's something that I'm personally also really interested in. I think that, you know, like, the rich markets are right, because they put, or they allow people to put their money where their mouth is. And the more I read about them, the better I find them in theory, right? Um, if people buy in. So I wonder why haven't they? Is it because they're illegal? Because that is illegal? So you can only do it with well, this book is intended to be an explanation of just that phenomena and many others where there's these things that look like they should be a good idea from the point of view of the things we say we want. And we're not interested because we're not actually interested in the things we say we want. So most organizations uh, are complicated and big and have a lot of decisions to make and a lot of things goes on. And if you ask any one person what they want or what they're doing, 
their, their best favorite explanation is always, well, I'm collecting more information <laughs> for the value of the entire company. And yes, of course, I would like to get more information. That would be great. Everybody wants more information, and that's what they're doing all the time. Merely collecting information, surely not helping any one faction out against another. <laughs> but of course, actual corporate and organizational activity is full of politics. Almost everything is various coalitional politics, but that's not what people want to say. So they don't want to say, well, I'm working out how to undermine the other faction and help mine. <laughs> they say, I'm collecting information. <laughs> so because they say they want information, uh, they say, therefore, they say they want prediction markets. So say there's a project and a deadline. Uh, well, yes, of course. Uh, we should know whether we're going to make the deadline. But they really don't want to know if they're going to make the deadline. So just walk through this. Imagine you're in charge of a project and you have a deadline and you might not make the deadline. You want an excuse. What will be your excuse if you don't make the deadline? Well, everybody's favorite excuse, and it's obvious once you think about it, is the thing that killed my project that made it not make the deadline is a very rare event. It came out of left field. No one could hit someone at the last moment. It knocked us flat. It'll never happen again. And so therefore, nobody should be held responsible. Nothing should change. <laughs> uh, well, that might be even better, but it's dangerous. They might retaliate. <laughs> Safest just to blame it on the universe, then and something will never happen again. Now, this excuse works if, as people usually manage it, until you fail to make the deadline, everybody says you will. You have meetings, and they all say, yes, of course, we'll make the deadline. We're all on schedule. And then all of a sudden, you don't. If you set up a prediction market, <laughs> it'll say right from the beginning, you're not going to make the deadline. And now you've lost your favorite excuse. People will say, well, look, there was a warning early on. Why didn't you do something? Of course, the problem is you're not sure what you could do, but <laughs> you would be blamed. <laughs> And so the prediction market gets in the way of your favorite excuse. You might say, again, organizations should want to know if they will make deadlines. But individual people and factions may not want to know if they will make deadlines, if they will be blamed for the failure. And so this is a ubiquitous thing all over organizations. So to put it another way, imagine we put an autist in the C-suite. That is, we put somebody in the C-suite, an executive level, who is very knowledgeable about the organization, very aware of lots of key issues, but has no political awareness whatsoever. They simply blurt out whatever pops into their head, no matter who it embarrasses, no matter who opposes it, etc. I predict that this person will not last very long in the C-suite. They may become a very useful advisor to someone, kept quiet, but they will not be allowed to simply blab everything that pops into their head, no matter how often it's proved correct or useful. So that's a prediction market, is this thing that blabs. It's very accurate, it is, and it doesn't have any political awareness whatsoever. It just blabs whatever it thinks, and it just, therefore, disrupts people's expectations. People often hire advisors to give them uh, analysis, but they usually want to hire predictable advisors who they can control somewhat. Hiring an advisor who will give you an unpredictable advice is really a pretty dangerous thing, and it's only done very rarely. Yeah, and speaking of advisors, I think your advisor now knows this, right? Uh, and Augur and... Uh, oh, so Augur as well? Yeah. Okay, so here's a personal uh, question that I have with Augur. Cell. Cell. Uh, hmm? Cell. That was your question, right? No, 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 kind of tokens like rep tokens by verifying whether it's truthfully, whether yeah. it's or not. And so that to me kind of like made truth kind of like 
open up for grabs in terms of the networks because people might A, not um, actually have false information, so verify the wrong event, or might be corruptible. I offer you a lot of grab to report that the event that never actually happened. Well, we've had betting markets for thousands of years, and it usually just works to have a judge with a repu- long-term <laughs> reputation. It just it doesn't that much matter as long as the judge has a long-term reputation to protect about being a reliable judge. This is how betting markets have worked for a very long time. So I actually don't think resolving bets is that complicated because it's never been that complicated. Uh, people in the blockchain world have decided that that's not quite good enough and they want to do something better and they're struggling to create these decentralized things. But as you say, they have some problems. Okay. But it's, I mean, again, as usual, you should ask in any large system, what are the main problems? And you focus on solving them. Premature optimization is the root of all engineering evil. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you look at a, a system and you pick the wrong things to focus on redesigning and optimizing, you will just go very wrong. You need to have a good judgment about what the key parts are that are the limiting factors and focus your design efforts on those and don't get too distracted by the wrong parts. So I think judging is the wrong part. Not the limiting factor, not the thing to focus on. Okay, cool. All right, so that was it for my side. Um, any questions in the audience? I think you're just going to, if it's okay, speak up really loudly uh, so I don't have to run around with a microphone that's shamed. Um, well, what I want to say thanks. That was a great talk earlier. Um, you learned that a lot, summed up a lot, and I think explanation for behavior. Um, I'm going to take it back to a question regarding your initial uh, lecture. Uh, so you spoke a lot about uh, <coughs> explaining our actual wants, explaining our behavior. Uh, do you have any thoughts on like, what our needs are? Needs? Yeah, like getting dangerously close to maybe a Rolling Stones quote. But like all of our like standard uh, motivations as you stand it, is there any relation to what our standard motivations relating to what society may need? Like, for example, in education, like that might not be what we want in our educational systems, but a society as a whole needs people to learn more, to make people more productive. Many of the motives that we claim to have are seen as pro-social motives. They are motives that if we actually had those motives, at least it seems as if the world would be better. And that is often seems to be true. It seems like we, the world might be better if we were all healthier, if we knew more, if we gave, we helped other people who helped. So just in general, many of the motives we give lip service to are things that seem like they would be helpful. Um, but again, of course, they aren't our actual motives. <laughs> uh, I, I don't, you could say they're what we need, but you know, what we do is based on what we want. We don't have much flexibility to change what we want on the basis of, like, what would be good for everybody. Who's going to grow? I mean, the CEO does want to know if the project's going to be late. I want the engineer mm-hmm. who designed that bridge to make it so it won't fall down when I'm driving under. You, you might... So, uh, CEOs and kings and autarchs in general are much more constrained than people realize. Uh, people like to think as if they could do anything they wanted, and they can't. Uh, they are really quite constrained by their political environment and uh, nearly as constrained as the people below them, uh, which is unfortunately why, uh, you know, there are not these interests. So if you're a CEO and you simply start adopting policies like prediction markets and other policies that would be good for the firm, if they're bad for the coalition, political coalitions that have supported you, you will not stay CEO very long. <laughs> um, most organizations, uh, the person at the top is there because there's a coalition backing them. And that's true in nations as well. Uh, Bruno de Mesquita has a whole set of uh, stuff about the selectorate who supports an autarch. Uh, the autarch is not a king who can do anything they want. They have a selectorate they need to please, otherwise they will be out. Okay, I guess I'll go. Um, 
I'll stand up, project better, or maybe I'm signaling something. Um, so I, I've heard you give this talk a couple of times, and I heard the Sam Harris podcast, which was really awesome. Um, sometimes when you give, some things that you say sound like one interpretation, and then some other things that you say sound like a different interpretation. So I maybe give you both, and you can tell me which one seems more accurate. In the first interpretation, there's the press secretary up front saying, you know, here's my motives, blah, blah, blah. And then there's like the puppeteer in the back of the room that's actually thinking about things maybe subconsciously and, and providing the real motives and kind of steering things in different ways. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation is there's still the press secretary up front saying whatever, but there is no puppeteer in the back of the room, right? It's, it's, it's what Dan Dennett would call free-floating rationales. So it's, it's not a rationale that's represented in any way, subconsciously or otherwise, in the brain, right? It's, it's more of the evolutionary model, where you just happen to be the child of people who happen to do things for supposedly these motives, but evolution has a you know, different thing in mind. So is it that you have this kind of gremlin in the back that's your real puppeteer, or is it evolution... That's, that's a real, you know, and so it's not really being represented in any way in your brain. Well, we, we are purposely being ambiguous about that because we don't know. And it varies a lot. Uh, that is, the reliable thing I can do is look at behavior and say, what motive would explain this? Uh, it's much harder to figure out what the actual detailed causal process is that's producing that correspondence of behavior and the motive. Uh, and so... Sometimes it might be a part of your head that's hard to see that's thinking it through, and sometimes it might be, yes, a cultural inheritance that you just live in a culture where things work, and there was a selection process whereby cultures fought and some won, and the cultures that inherited the better habits won, and you, you inherit those, and they work, and you don't know why. Isn't there some way to test that, like in specific circumstances? There, there may well be. There should be, but I just don't know what the answer is. Um, so this is a first book in hope what could be a, a larger effort. You know, we're mainly asking, trying to open up a new territory of, of this thinking of things this way. But if this was interesting, we could write more books on this, you know, exposing more than the 10 areas we covered, doing more uh, analysis of variation, more analysis of policy consequences. There's a lot we could do, but we're just doing the first step here. First book should do the first step. Yeah, so within the realm of religion, did you take any time to study anti-cults, esoteric societies, or psychedelic societies that destroy the gap between motive and hidden motive? Uh, I have no idea what that is, so no. <laughs> um, I would like to ask you, first of all, it was a very excellent talk. You brought up the selector theory, which is in fact extremely important. I think like organizational insecurity of leadership is one of those crucial things that tends to be undervalued. And the example of the autist is very good, and the example of, well, the prediction market would just make a CEO more like an autist if you're asking about the company. What about if you are asking the CEO of the company, what if the prediction market or some other mechanism, or perhaps an advisor, is providing them information about the selectorate? Surely that should make them more secure, and that should be valued. Well, um, the question is how many people can see the prediction market? <laughs> right? If it was just like a, a machine in the back room that nobody else saw, then the CEO would be happy to use it to get his private advice. The more people can see the same advice unless he can pretend it doesn't exist, or he or she. That is then the model of how successful advisors work. Like successful political advisors, at least, are successful. Right. Now, it turns out it is possible to make prediction markets where the traders don't know what the answers of the markets are. It's just harder, and people haven't done it, but it is possible. So that's uh, one answer in that direction. But largely, this is largely unexplored. But still, you might think people... 
once you're made in the market and you're hiding the prices, people go, why are you hiding the prices? <laughs> and it might be hard to give a good excuse why you were hiding the prices. Then I pressure you to open the prices. Now you're in trouble because now the price. Well, um, there are prediction markets in national security. <laughs> um, so hand over. Yeah, so I have a question regarding norm violations and uh, uh, laughter. Uh, yeah. So the question is regarding uh, if laughter is the biggest form of uh, functional laughter is uh, okay norm violations. Why is why do people just you know, watch television or comedy? For example, is that is and they find that experience enjoyable? Is that then like a, some kind of group acceptance of norm violations? Why does it feel like when you laugh at a joke, it is not a conscious decision of being like, in this context, this joke makes sense. It's like almost a subconscious decision. of It's an instinctive reaction to laugh at something. It seems less of a, you know, because it seems less of a conscious decision based on figuring out how to these norms. Um, and so just... Your brain is huge. Yeah. Your conscious part of your mind is small. Right. So your brain is doing a lot you're not aware of. Most of what it's doing is thinking about social things. Your brain is large for social reasons. Much of social things are norm violations. So your brain is large and capable of doing vast calculations about norm violations without you being aware of it. Right. So, uh, so but then what is the function of, say, watching a television uh, comedy? What, what is, why do people find that important? Uh, is it, it, like, what is the function of that? Uh, well, people... So... There's the whole point of stories and what entertainment is for, and then there's the point of being social. So, of course, watching TV has a number of things. Some people have noticed that uh, people who watch TV, like, uh, who have characters who are friendly on TV, they think they have more friends. So, obviously, the, the, the ancient world uh, didn't have TV, so people's... Well, it feels like a friend. Um, and the other people who are watching TV with you feel like uh, friends, too. So uh, the laugh track helps you feel like you're in a crowd uh, all laughing with you together at the show and then feel like you're part of a group. Uh, so, well, there's doing all the things usual groups do, but groups usually do laugh at things, and that's part of what groups do. Is, uh, they, they affirm that way that they share norms. That is, we like the people that we laugh with because that shows that they share our concepts of not only what the norm should be, but which norms we're actually going to enforce and which we, we pretend to enforce and ignore. That, that's what a lot, a lot of laughter is showing you, which rules you take seriously and which rules you pretend to take seriously and don't really take seriously. That, the laughter shows you which things people actually care about or don't care about. And in a group, hearing a lot of laughter can give you a lot of cues about that, but laughing at the same time everybody else does shows you that you share those judgments with them, and therefore this is a group of people that you can trust and they can trust you. So you don't actually care if you never expect to be a prisoner, <laughs> if you, yeah. Uh, I really like your last two books and your blog. My question is, do you have a next project lined up or a book or an area that you're going to go into? And what would that be? I have a grant from the Open Philanthropy Foundation that I just visited a few hours ago. And um, the pitch I made for that grant, which was accepted, was I would do an analysis like the Age of M, but for a different AI scenario. And the AI scenario I pitched was, let's just assume we continue to collect more better software like we've been doing for 70 years with no great revolution. Just use the past trajectory of software to predict the future trajectory of software. And so that seemed to me a neglected scenario. It's a good baseline for whatever other changes do happen to talk about uh, what happens if there aren't any dramatic changes. And so I've been working on that, and that could produce a book. Uh, I've been not mildly neglecting it, and I really should pay more attention to it. Uh, but honestly... Um, 
Writing books is a big commitment, not only because it takes several years to write a book, but because there's no point in writing a book unless you're going to market it. So then you need to give yourself some years to market the book, which means the book takes even more years. And I happened to do two books in parallel because I had a great opportunity to work with somebody, Kevin Sumlin, the co-author on this book, and he wanted to write a book, and that was very hard to say no to. So I'm near the, I'm, you know, perhaps a year or two away from the end of a cycle where I made a bunch of commitments and I've been following through. So I'm proud of myself for following the commitments, but gee, it would be nice to not be in a committed mode. So I don't want to have a decision what my next book will be. <laughs> I want it not to be settled. I want it to be open-ended where I like aren't following through with a commitment, but I get to choose. Um, maybe you can just say this question, but I missed the slide that you talked about, which is about futures. Uh, was there any sort of vision I was invited to give a talk at Oakland Futurist Society last night. They said, gee, you're talking over here about the same thing. We want something a little different. And I said, okay, Futurist Society, I could add a little thing about futurism. And so I did a small discussion of hidden motives and futurism for a futurist society. That's, of course, not something that showed up in the book. But... Uh, sure. Um, so why do people think they care about the future? What, why, what, what, do they, what do they think is going on? And they're talking and thinking about the future. Uh, the usual story is surely that people want to see the future so they could help it or help us in the future. That has to be the overwhelmingly common story. You care about what the actual future is and helping people. And it is true that you can do more about the future than the past. It is more plausible there. <laughs> However, um, it turns out that uh, if you cared about the future and influencing it or helping it, you could do it a lot by just not spending and saving. Again, that 5% per year average rate of return on investments accumulates a factor of 1,000 in a century. You, you, if you cared about the future, you could have enormous influence by saving money and you don't. Um, and uh, people are really interested in fiction about the future compared to a f- fact about the future. There's a huge emphasis on fiction compared to other topics where the emphasis is, isn't quite so heavy. Um, also, when people focus on the future, they tend to focus on values relative to facts. For most ordinary decisions and most topics in your life, values are relevant. Usually facts are much more important. But for in futurism, people want to focus on values and they don't want to focus very much on facts, just as with politics. And... Um, People are not very realistic, interested in realistic futures. Um, plausibly, what's going on, um, as as many people have noted, uh, interest in, say, science fiction and futurism is a way to indirectly, metaphorically talk about today. Uh, the kind of future scenarios we're most interested in are scenarios where the good versus evil, or you know, whatever political and um, value axes we have today, are reflected again in that scenario and even in an exaggerated form. But in fact, across time, it should actually be hard to project value axes into strange worlds. So if you ask people a thousand years ago about our world, you described our world in its rough outline, and you ask, well, which parts of this do you think are good or bad, or what do you think about the whole thing? It should have just been really hard for them to do that. Uh, and they might have made a judgment randomly based on the first few things they heard, because your world is really just weird for them. They should find it hard to evaluate your world, to figure out the heroes in your world and the villains in your world. That should be really hard for someone from 1,000 years ago, especially even harder for someone from 10,000 or 100,000 years ago. So uh, you should expect the future to be strange, primarily, <laughs> and not easy to evaluate on any familiar good versus evil axis. But the vast majority of stories in fiction and even nonfiction scenarios of the future 
are surprisingly easy to evaluate on a goody versus evil axis. Uh, plausibly, that's because we are, in fact, using our talking about the future as a way to talk indirectly about today and a way to talk about our values today. That's a standard trope about science fiction and a plausible trope about futurism. You're using the future as a way to talk about today. You might use the concern about future unemployment as a way to talk about how people today are unemployed. You might use uh, some future scenario, uh, say, you know, The Handmaid's Tale to talk about gender relations today, etc. Right? You use these exaggerated versions of something you don't like or do like in today to talk about those things today. That's plausibly the main emotional uh, function that's going on inside you to be really interested in the future. People think they're interested in the future because they like science fiction, for example, and they don't realize the future isn't really much about science fiction. And when they find out what the future might plausibly be like, they realize they lose interest. And in fact, plausibly, most people don't actually care much about the future beyond the lives of their children and grandchildren. Otherwise, they'd be saving more <laughs> and uh, to have more influence over. Would you uh, include EAs in that space? Uh, most of these things, we're trying to describe the overall trend of society, right? The overall things we see t- varying over time and space. If, if we're going to start to look at various subsets and talk about how they differ, then now things get a lot more complicated. I, I do have some theories, but uh, they're less confident, and of course, they're less focused on the book. Um, but... Um, Nerds, like me, are less socially skilled. And when we look at hypocrisy, i.e. doing one thing and saying another, we are pulled toward the sincerity end of that spectrum for two reasons. One, we feel less confident in being hypocritical and knowing how to get away with it. Other people who are socially skilled, they know how to smooth around and, and to get away with being hypocritical. Nerds will just screw that up more. On the other side, nerds are better able to point out other people's hypocrisy. They're better able to carefully calculate what you should be doing according to the usual rule and notice that people are deviating. So for both of those reasons, nerds tend to want to take the sincerity strategy, the strategy of just doing the things we say we're trying to do and looking, trying to get credit for that. Um, and so uh, that's the way nerds have long been through all sorts of things. I'd say, you know, back in the past, often these issues were about religion, Religion has these ideals, and most people in a religious society don't actually live up to the ideals very much, and every once in a while, somebody would complain about that. They would point out that ordinary behavior did not live up to common religious ideals, and those would be nerds. And uh, they would be retaliated against, accused of being holier than thou and thinking they're better than everybody else, and any particular flaw in their behavior would be pointed out to say, say, they're no better than the rest of us. And that's a common retaliation against the nerds who... Uh, want to point out that the rest of us are hypocrites. And that's a danger today for nerdy people who want to point out other people's hypocrisy and, and say that they're going to do better. They will be accused of trying to be holier than thou and missing, neglecting things. And that sort of thing has happened to effective altruists. So that would be my description of effective altruists in terms of historical perspective. I would, of course, I could also add on there a youth movement and the selfs and things about that, but eventually they won't be a youth movement anymore. <laughs> They'll just be the older guys. Well, we have a section in the book uh, right after the conversation where we say, well, academic conversations a lot like this. Show, and we just say, well, we're, we're showing off too. Uh, that, that's the most straightforward way to uh, you know, accept what we say as applying to us is that we think you're kind of impressed uh, <laughs> by all the different skills we can show with the book. Uh, but I, as I said, you know, emotionally, I've also thought, you know, if you ever read, um, you know, well, There are many 20-year-olds in the world who have this sense that um, there's a lot of bullshit around. (laughs) 
and they're not sure what to believe exactly. <laughs> and uh, nobody's really telling them the truth. And I always thought it would be nice if there was a, a book they could go read that like, would just, like, frankly, tell them what's going on. <laughs> and uh, now I hope there's more of such a thing, <laughs> uh, some way that, uh, hey, if you want to know what's really going on, there's, you should say, are you sure you want to know? <laughs> but if they press you, then you give them something like that. Not that the book has gotten press, it's only been a short time since it has been, but are you running into groups, I mean, you've already mentioned EA, but groups or people, especially in the policy side of things, who are starting to do a better match between, I mean, they, they actually are designers that are going to, that are going to be effective, that, that they're going to take this, this sort of information into account as, as they move forward. I mean, there's going to be lots of people claiming to do that, but... Right. Do you have the ability to discover people who are... I don't think there's any change in the trend, but there, there are always people who notice our common hypocrisies and who devote themselves to doing better, that is, to trying to rise, raise their behavior up to their ideals. There are also other people who notice the difference and lower their ideals down to their behavior. Uh, they get less celebrated for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, but uh, you know, in all the areas, in medicine and education, nutrition, all these different areas of life, there are always people who notice these differences and then devote themselves to uh, trying to do better. There have been religious revivals, for example, of religions of people who do that, people in altruism, people in education programs where they say, well, we're going to really teach our kids the things they really need to know. And these things continue to happen over and over. Those things to happen? Yeah, for, for them to happen for real. Since there's a lot of people who are saying, well, we are... But those things do happen for real all the time. They're just a small percentage of the population. But there, there continues to always be various movements of idealists who to declare their de- dedication to our ideals and, re- and want to do better. And they do better for a while and then piddle out, and that's how it goes. <laughs> um, it doesn't accumulate very often. But sometimes it accumulates in things, of course, in the long run. Yes, in the way to After this question, we have one more. Um, promoting across individualistic versus communal systems, societies, do you see there being, um, or having the differences that might come across in the Individualist versus communal societies have different things you're supposed to pretend. Uh, so in a communal society, you're supposed to pretend to not be putting yourself up there as somebody everybody should pay, pay attention to. You're supposed to work in the background to help us all but not stand out and, and, and be paid attention to. And if you do, then you, you will be disliked and, and pushed down. Uh, that's a standard thing in a communal society. Whereas in an individual society, you're supposed to try to be distinctive. In our society, people go out of their way to pretend that they are different and authentic and unique and not following conformity pressure, but uh, following their heart and doing what they love. That's the sort of thing you're supposed to pretend in our society, whereas in a communal society, you're supposed to pretend the opposite. You're supposed to pretend whatever you're doing is for the good of the community and you're not trying to be different and you're just trying to be one of us. Of course, in both cases, uh, you're pretending those things more than actually doing those things. Uh, So the difference are more in what we pretend than what we are. Can I ask you a question on methodology? So you, your goal or, uh, seems to be uh, to show us our motivation <coughs> that we believe we have and actually then, uh, show us the, the real behind it. What's the methodology to actually find the right explanation other than just Detail. Everything comes down to detail. The devil's in the detail. Uh, 
Our usual motives that we say are excuses, but they are excuses constructed with the expectation that they will not usually be uncovered as excuses. If they were too transparently excuses, they don't work as excuses. So that means it can't be easy to tell. Uh, if it was too easy, then uh, they wouldn't work as excuses, right? And so uh, in any one individual level, it's very hard to tell what the actual motives. The way we can tell is to aggregate all the individual behaviors into overall patterns of behavior, and then look at the details of the pattern of behavior to see particular details that might not make sense from one point of view that make more sense from another point of view. And that's what we've done in each of those 10 areas. Each of those 10 areas. But there's also a danger of, of kind of generalizing, just like in, say, uh, you know, evolutionary psychology, where, where people will find reasons for this is why you behave this way because you know, I'm telling you, and that makes sense. And sometimes it's just plausible, but not really necessarily true. This is how inference goes everywhere. All you can ever do is identify the set of alternative possible theories, find data that might distinguish those theories, and confront the data against the theories. For each data you have, you ask, how likely is it to see this data with those theories? Uh, and all the best you can do is collect enough such pieces of data with strong enough distinctions between the theories that together they point strongly enough in some direction. And that's all I can do here. That's all we ever do. All we ever do is identify different theories, collect data that could be predicted by the different theories, and ask for each theory, how well does it predict the data? Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date. Or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>